Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. We are live on the air. Today's guest is the most dominant revolver shooter today. He is the reigning seven-time consecutive USPSA Revolver National Champion, the 2017 Ipsic World Revolver Champion, the 2023 WRC Champion, that's World Revolver Championship, and the 2023 Ruger International Revolver Championship Champion. That's a lot of championships and and all of that. As it pertains to practical shooting, more than likely he shoots and reloads his revolver faster than you shoot and reload your semi-auto pistol. So join me in welcoming to the show once again, Michael Poggi. How you doing, Michael? Great, David. How are you? Good. I, I got your name pronunciation correct, I hope. You did. You did. That, awesome. that, runs, in, uh, that runs in revolver shooters. No one knows how to say it. Uh, I, a, a lot of people keep saying pogey, and I, I keep saying pogey. I sound weird because I'm the only guy who does it, but I'm like, he corrected me, so I know how to say it. Yep. Uh, so before you introduce yourself real quick, I should probably explain to everybody that we did this several months back. Something weird happened and your audio just wasn't captured. It was really odd. Like it was like I was talking to myself, laughing at myself, asking questions of myself with no answers. Um, so whatever. <laughs> it happened, unfortunately. Uh, I'm glad you're back. Thank you for coming back and re-recording. And if you would, go ahead and take a second and introduce yourself. Well, well, you pretty much covered it there. I've uh, I've had a good run shooting revolvers and um, can't seem to get away from it. I've I've made a few attempts to, and I just can't seem to worm out of it. Okay, so I guess that's it for your future revolver. It is. <laughs> oh, you never know. I just bought a pair of limited guns last <laughs> week. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, oh, it, well, let me write that down. <laughs> well, I own everything. I own everything, but I get interested in something and I'll shoot it over the winter and, uh, you know, come back to revolver thinking I'll pick it up again later and just came to just seem to uh, keep sticking with revolver. Nothing wrong with that. You're pretty good at it. So I don't blame you. It's, it's kind of like, you know, Michael Jordan put down a basketball for a couple of years to go hit a baseball and then came right back to it. You know? Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. That's right. All right, so like we did the last time, I'm going to ask you your favorites, and then we'll get into the meaty stuff. Good. Um, I, so. I forget them all, so, hope, so I'm glad you didn't record the last one because I'm going to change all my opinions. And that's good because I have no record to dispute it. So <laughs> you're, you're safe. <laughs> Favorite movie? Oh, I forgot about that one. Um, the Patriot. <laughs> oh, okay. I like it. Classic. I'm going to write it's them classic. down this time. It's a classic now. It wasn't a classic until recently. Right. Yeah, I don't know what the time frame is, but it's got to be there. If you read, and I'm finding that uh, at probably 50% of the population no longer reads, um, what is your favorite book? Um, I do read, not not very often. I might uh, I might get away with um, one book a year, you know, hanging on the beach for vacation or something. But I I spend a lot of time on the road, um, and I do listen to some podcasts and some books on tape. 
And my answer is almost always whatever I'm into right then and there. So my boss just got me going on this book, uh, The Outliers. Okay, um, yeah. It's uh, I, I, I'm not very far into it, but um, that's what's really caught my attention lately. Okay. You no, know, it's, it's uh, someone kind of wrote a book, did a did a like an intellectual study of um, people who stand out from you know the rest of the group. Isn't Michael Jordan in that book? I would assume so. Like I said, I'm not far into it, but I don't know how Michael Jordan's not in that book. Right. Yeah, I think he's yeah. in that book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's got to be. All right. I don't know if you're into superheroes, and neither one, <laughs> neither one of us remember our answers from last time. <laughs> uh, if you are, who's your favorite superhero? If not, who's your favorite historical figure? Um, I would go... Um superhero i like i like batman um okay. you know a little bit more normal well i mean other than a lot of money um right but uh operates in the gray a little bit for sure kind of uh kind of um a little bit more representative of a, a normal you know a normal person rather than a standard superhero and the people who have said batman on the other episodes have said the same thing that he's more, he doesn't really have any superpowers, but he's a normal guy who does things like a superhero. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully none of them are in jail. I don't, that hopefully that's not the next thing you're going to say. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't want to know. <laughs> all right. Favorite gun and favorite caliber of all time. And they don't oh. have to be, the gun doesn't have to match the caliber. It could be a rifle caliber with a pistol. Well, the caliber, um, I, this is kind of a stereotypical for a revolver guy to say, but uh, 357 Magnum family, you know, on down is, is extremely uh, versatile, right? I mean, you could shoot it in a rifle and, and get some really light rifle uh, velocities out of it, and you could shoot it in a handgun and then all the way down to short Colt, which was historically a really, really light, um lightly loaded round but then you know we shot it when we switched over to shooting minor guns we loaded it to nine millimeter velocities and shot it out of guns that were designed to take magnum and it was fantastic so it'd be hard to not pick the 357 family at least in uh, north america that's going to handle 99 percent of all your uh, shooting needs and hunting um if you only if you can only have one but uh a gun huh one gun ah <sighs> There's something really, um, really romantic about a bolt action rifle. Ooh, it's I like it. Not a lot of moving parts. It's simple. It's it's kind of just you and the elements, right? Yep. Yeah, I enjoy that. Or or like a, uh, well, same thing, I guess, a single shot twenty two or single shot air rifle. It's very pure. Interesting. Okay. What did I say? Like an MP5 last time, like the exact opposite or something crazy. Huh? <laughs> <Right. laughs> that goes along with my mood. I think you could ask me that, you know, at a different time of day and I'd give you a totally different answer, I think. Mm, I'll just have to randomly send you that question sometime. You should, see what you, you come should. back with. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here right now watching a nice peaceful sundown and I got that, that silenced Creedmoor feeling going on right now. Oh, and I got a 6.5 Creed right there. 
Nice. Right behind the on-air sign. Perfect. All right. So the the last favorite question is tailored specifically to you. Uh-oh. And your 2017 World Championship, what was your favorite moment? Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be on the range. It could have been something you did sightseeing. Yeah. Uh, oh, we had a we had a lot of fun on that trip. That was a very emotional trip for me. Uh, a lot of ups and downs in the match. My wife was there and got to see the whole thing. She doesn't she doesn't come to a lot of um, USPSA or IPSC matches with me. Um, usually, just because of my own emotional roller coaster. Um, but uh, we had a lot of fun. But one one short story on our day off. So you know, there's six days of shooting, and you take a day off somewhere. Some I kind of felt bad for the guys that had the first day off because you know that you you kind of get all amped up and you go to opening ceremony and then you have a day off and you don't want to go do anything because you're still kind of wound up. Right. Right. But our day off was, it was midweek, you know, it was a proper day off. I can't remember if we shot two and had a day or we shot three and had a day, but I got in the car with uh, rich and Amy Wolf and my wife and uh, anyone who knows rich knows it's, it's a little gray area to get in a car with rich. He's, (laughs) he's known to stretch the limits of a car. He doesn't own quite well. Um, Okay. I can't remember. We, we just went up to uh, Lamar, and I don't remember on these back roads how many times we did or didn't get airborne or how many of those little flashing speeding box tickets he got in the mail later. But uh, we, Rich and I almost talked him into letting us drive these um, race cars, full-on prototype race cars. And with the language barrier and maybe they had or hadn't seen an American driver's license. We were trying to convince them that they were racing licenses, um, but we oh but we God. we got shut down. But we did make it onto the go kart track, and somehow in the middle of the go kart track, I got pointed the wrong way, still pinned to the floor, and I turned Rich's wife into a, a small jump, and I drove a go kart right over her. And I, I landed. Down. Yeah, I don't. I got spun around, and my foot was still in it. And she's and these were fast go karts. This is probably not a go kart you're going to get to drive in the U.S. without at least a mild uh, training session or like SCCA license. Um, and I landed on the ground, and I kind of had to check, make sure everything was still stuck to me, and make sure I didn't have any broken bones, and take a deep breath. And then I realized I'm in one piece, and I'm looking around behind me trying to see where Amy is. And I go, Oh no, I survived this, but rich, he's going to kill me. (laughs) He's, he's just going to choke me to death. And I turned around and looked and Amy kind of did the same thing and made sure she was in one piece and gave me a thumbs up. We went right back to racing. (laughs) Jay Slater mentions racing all the time. So you guys are in South Africa at the same time. I'm pretty sure he would take you up on actual racing. If you guys could figure it out. Well, that's good to know. We went and drove some go-karts um, a few weeks ago in Ohio, but Jay wasn't there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, He's always talking with, about Formula One racing and other stuff. Yeah. I went with a couple guys and Tim Heron. Tim Heron used to be, uh, you know, kind of a club racer, kind of like we're all club shooters, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he's quick. Tim's, Tim's really quick, so that was fun to go go-karting with him at Nationals interesting next time i have him on i'm gonna have to ask him about that yeah you should you should tim was heavily into racing for about 10 years 
Wow. Yeah, I definitely. Oh, that is definitely open for conversation now. Yeah. So, Michael, you, you live in the Pacific Northwest now. Have you always lived up there? Um, I grew up on the East Coast, kind of um, between um, Hagerstown, Maryland and Martinsburg, West Virginia. And okay. uh, but we moved out here just just when high school started. We were kind of in between kind of where my parents worked. My parents worked in two different directions and the school, the high school would have been a separate direction. So it was kind of a logistical nightmare. And my parents had spent time um, out here before I was born. And um, the plan was never to move. My mom grew up back east back there. And the plan was never to move back there for a long term. It was move back there, deal with some family stuff and then come back here. And, um, and you know, and I think that just turned into kids and houses and jobs and cars and all the things life. And, and my parents just sat us down one day and they told us we're moving out west. And my brother and I just kind of looked at each other and went, oh, okay, whatever. I mean, I don't know. We can't do anything about it. We're kids. <laughs> But uh, so we came out here right before high school and haven't gone far since. Kind of, kind of stayed in the you know hundred mile range of where we moved to. Now, before before you moved, that area that you lived before moving out west was and probably still is some pretty good hunting ground. Did you do any hunting before you moved? Yeah, I did. Yeah, we grew up. Uh, we grew up doing a little hunting. Um, I'm not quite sure what the rules were, but um, it seemed it seemed um, quite like a free for all in West Virginia where we were. <laughs> it probably still is. It, it's <laughs> if it, if it's not a free for all, the freeways a free for all, man. There's a lot of, compared to out west. You know, maybe I didn't notice it because I didn't live there when I was driving. But um, every time I go visit, there sure seemed to be a lot of roadkill back there compared to here. Um, but no, um, I think hunting is a lot bigger. Um, in that area, in that region, than it is out west, just because of the sheer volume of animals, especially like a deer. Um, we've got them out here. We've got a lot of them, but um, it's they're so much harder to get to here um, in the hunting areas. There's so much, so much land here is uh, residential, um, and uh, there's not nearly as many here compared to you know, heavy, thick woods back there. So, uh, okay. but a lot of fishing, we, we lived on a river and, uh, I mean, I think I went fishing every day and there wasn't too much in the yard that I didn't try to shoot with a bow. Uh, but yeah, a little bit of, a little bit of hunting and fishing when dad could, uh, when my dad and my uncles could get the time, we'd go out and get a deer or turkey. Um, I didn't, I thought everyone shot their Christmas, their Thanksgiving turkey. Um, I didn't, I didn't know some people went to the store and bought it until I got to high school. That was, a, that was a little bit of a shock. Yeah. The, well, the staff at giant food doesn't like it when I bring my gun in to shoot. the turkey, so. <laughs> Yeah, my, my dad was reserves in the Navy. And I remember one year he was gone around the holidays and my mom took us to a farm and the farmer let us pick the turkey. And I was like, Oh, we're not. This, this is another way people get turkeys. I'm not familiar with this. <laughs> so buying so turkeys and eggs. I didn't know people bought eggs at the store. I thought everyone had chickens. So I assume that the farmer killed the turkey and dressed it and gave it to you guys. Yeah. Okay. 
I didn't that know if he shopping. took it home and did all that. That was turkey shopping. I, I like Just it. Go That's a pretty good you idea. Walk the, you walk through the barnyard and pick the one you like, I guess. Now, what's the, um, I assume you fish out there. So what's the fishing like out there? Oh, the fishing out here is great. You know, it's a big salmon population where we live here. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, and if you're too bored of this, you know, Alaska is a short plane ride. Um, Literally. Yeah. 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 It's quick. We went up, I went up this summer with some friends and, uh, you know, you, you could almost just stick a net in the water. I was going to say, it almost seems like it would be cheating to fish up there. Yeah. Well, here when the rivers run with the salmon, I mean, same thing. You can, you know, you can just kind of wade in the water and pick one up. It's pretty wild. Now, where you are there, are there many bear? Like in Alaska, I feel like uh, you're doing hand-to-hand -hand combat with bears over the salmon, but I don't know what it's like in Washington. Yeah, so where I live, um, I'm I'm between um, Seattle and Vancouver, BC. So kind of, if you look at a map and you look at okay. the freeway between the two, I'm kind of smack dab in the middle, maybe 80, 90 miles e either direction gets me to either one. And um, and the the landscape is um, right as the as the the sound Puget Sound hits the hits the the earth right above water level. Um, it's slightly flat where we live. It's farmland. And then um, you go inland 15, 20 miles and the mountains just come straight up. So there's, wow. you know, there's not a lot of bears down in the lowland. Um, but once you hit the mountains, I mean, if you're driving down a dirt road, in the mountains, you're going to find one every once in a while, one or wander into town and, and the um, state comes and gets it and hauls it away. Uh, but it's not, um, it's nothing like Alaska. Okay. Yeah. If you're, I mean, you know, it's, it's absolutely nothing like what's going on in Alaska or even, you know, two, three hours north into Canada where they're just walking around Whistler. Right. Yeah. Where you're outnumbered. Oh yeah. It's, 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 I mean, 150 miles north of here, it's, they're more bare than people. It seems it's, it's just mm. crazy, but there, we've got some cats here. Um, a few mountain lions. Um, there are lots of bobcat around. You don't see them, but, um, yeah, not not too many big animals. We have a herd of elk, local herd of elk. Um, okay. Those are kind of fun. The tribe managed those, so they um, they're not hunted um, heavily. It's not a free for all for for our local tribe, but they're they're fun to go watch. All right. Now, when you were in Alaska, you said you were there over the summer. Were you there when they had the twenty four hours of sunlight? Uh, let me think. So that would have been end of June. Uh, I think, uh, I think we went up in July for the 24 hours of sunlight this year. My wife's birthday is on the solstice. So we're always up to something. Um, oh. but, uh, we did Alaska a few years ago for the 24 hours this year. We did Iceland for uh, about two weeks over oh, that cool. same time period. So same thing. I, you know, Iceland's that same uh, latitude. So we got our 24 hours of sunlight there for two weeks. Okay. Now that's a, yeah, they're, uh, but they're while Alaska has a lot of earthquakes and volcanic activity, uh, Iceland's a little bit higher on that scale of volcanic activity. Yeah, it recently. is. Yeah. We, uh, we left, 
I guess that'd be a good way for me to remember when it was without going through pictures is look up when uh, that volcano was. I think it was three, four, five days after we left as that little volcano down south kicked off. Oh, wow. At least it was nice enough to let you get out. Yeah. It kind of sounds, you know, that, that region, they're kind of used to it. It's, they are. Uh, it's pretty wild. If they're not, how, they better get used to it. Yeah, it's pretty wild how nonchalant <laughs> everyone was. Oh, yeah, don't go over there. There's The earth is on fire. Right, literally. And my son, my son and I were talking today, and he's like, "Yeah, Iceland had two thousand earth." Oh no, no, I'm sorry. It was a a buddy of mine. He's like, "Yeah, Iceland had two thousand earthquakes yesterday. They're just waiting to explode." Yeah, <laughs> it's like, dang. Yeah. Now you're also then you're really close to Vancouver Island, where they film a lot of the Alone episodes. Yeah, I haven't. Like what's that? that? I haven't heard of that. What's that? Really? Yeah, I'm not. Uh... I'm I'm busy. I don't uh, I don't do a whole lot of TV. <laughs> like uh, I, apparently Jay and I have Formula One in common. If it's not Formula One, and maybe maybe over the winter I'll get through like six episodes of some documentary. I don't I don't catch too much TV. Okay, yeah, we we're not a big TV watcher, but we'll try to like watch a Netflix uh, series or something like that where. Yeah, we don't have to keep. We can watch it when we when we can. But there is one show we watch a lot of when they show it. It's called Alone, where they take ten participants. In this case, it would be at Vancouver Island. They mm -hmm. have so many items they can bring for survival, and they are out there till the last one standing, and then they win like five hundred grand. Oh wow! Yeah, it, um, on Vancouver you know, Island. You know which part of the island? Um, the part without the water, like the land part. <laughs> it's a <laughs> it's a big place, man. It's funny when people say, you know, we lived on an island. We lived on uh, I can't remember what they call Whidbey Island, the longest island mm. or the largest non man made island in the in the uh, forty eight. I don't remember what it is, but then people go, oh yeah. Vancouver Island's an island too. I go, yeah, but it, it's like a state. I mean, Vancouver Island is a monster. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know which portion. And they don't say; they just say Vancouver Island. So I, I literally yeah. have no idea where they actually do it. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, down south. There's a few cities uh, up north. It's, it's a wild west out there. Yeah. But if you ever if you ever are looking to watch something, I mean they've got like ten seasons, so it, it's yeah. pretty interesting. Good to know. Every yeah, once now, in a while, that, somewhere somewhere out here on a boat or on the edge of something, and I and I look over and remember that that's Canada over there. Yeah, it's, I can't be that far away. No, 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 it's not. I'm I'm trying to think. I got about a. Uh, five, six minute walk down here to the water. And I just don't think the way we're lined up, I could see it. Maybe some mountains. I got to look through the San Juan islands to see it, but maybe I can see a piece of it. Mm, okay. A lot closer than me. Yeah. So when did you get into shooting like as a sport? Um, as a as an organized sport uh, in school in high school when we moved out here they had a, a navy junior rotc program and they and uh, they had a three position air rifle team and i i got into that at freshman year so 14 
Um, and I, I like to say that high school was my first sponsor. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that was fun. You know, we, that was before school. We did that every morning before school for an hour and a half, uh, every day year round. And then in the summertime, we'd get together a couple days a week and just put in some longer practices. Um, but that was a great, uh, intro for me. You know, it was, it was really low, low impact, low on the budget. You know, I know a lot of kids have a hard time getting into, especially, um, handgun shooting. Um, but uh, that was a that was a great program for me to start in, and uh, yeah, made a lot of friends through there. Have you shot the bluegrass low cap classic? I have not. Uh, well, I, I only bring it up because I thought you know it's low cap, so you might have. But Leif Kunkel runs it, and that's how mm -hmm. he got into shooting in high school in New Jersey, yeah. rifle team, and then ended up on the West Virginia University Mountaineer um small bore team oh that's awesome i wonder if leif and i are about the same age i had a uh both my best friends one year older and one year younger went and shot for the air force academy oh wow yeah explains why you like bolt guns too i like it i need to um i'm gonna write his name down because i need a holster from him for these limited guns boom there you go <laughs> fate <laughs> that's what <Right>. that is <laughs> So that got you into organized shooting. How did you make the transition from that to pistols and when? Um, so right after school, I um, I I kind of looked around and um, tried to continue air rifle. You know, I was willing to buy a used rifle from the school. They were kind of selling some of the stuff we use and upgrading to some new stuff. But, you know, the Internet... Um, back then wasn't what it is today. You couldn't just Google, um, where are the local competitions? Mm. Um, and I think, um, I think several things have changed with, uh, you know, like practice score, for example, or, um, social media has really brought a lot of this to the forefront. I don't, I'd be curious to see what like USPSA's numbers are pre and post social media, um, exposure, but, um, I just kind of looked around where I lived and I was working a lot. I, um, I worked a lot from high school till about um, 30 years old. And I just kind of tried to see what fit in my schedule. So for a bit, it was just um, a little bit of shotgun shooting because at the time it was pretty cheap. Um, and I had a shotgun, a couple of shotguns. And then I shot a season of long range bolt action. And um, the only issue there, I really enjoyed that. It was just, it's a long way to practice. You know, it was a four hour drive to the closest range with a 600 yard mm -hmm. range. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and it was over a mountain pass. So, so, you know, four hours in the summer is not four hours in the winter here. Um, mm. And, and then when I turned 21, I, uh, I, my father-in-law who was a, um, well, he's my, he, she, we weren't married at the time, so my girlfriend's father was really into um, handgun shooting, just kind of recreationally with his friends, and he taught some women's classes. And to pick on me, he invited me to come to his women's class and and um, and be a very very poor example of how to not do things. Oh, okay. So that uh, that got me going down that road, and I, uh, you know, it snowballs, right? Here we are, right. 
It does. Now, at what point did you go, wow, this revolver thing is pretty cool? Uh, so, um, let's see, what did I have? I turned the day I, actually, it was probably about a month before I turned 21. I had um, worked at this little hardware store in high school that sold guns. They had a little gun counter. And I, I went in there to get some tools or something. And I uh, wandered over and I, I said, hey, I turned 21 next month. What do you got? And he and he hands me this beautiful, just world beating Taurus 1911 and 45. And uh, and, I, and I was like, well, this is all I can afford. So I guess I'll put it on layaway. And uh, so I turned 21. I finished the finished paying it off, got the paperwork. And I had this this little um, 45 Taurus, which actually ran fantastically for about five years that I really beat on it hard. Um, and uh, my dad had just started shooting some IDPA matches. And so I shot that for a few years. Um, and I, to be honest, I was kind of getting bored. And again, this is pre pre the internet, pre, you know, it's out and about where matches are. Uh, you know, you kind of had to meet someone or talk to someone to find where, you know, I'd even, I, I shot IDPA for probably two years at this club. Um, I never even heard the letters USPSA. Um, wow. I know, I know that really, I think people take it for granted today what the internet and social media has done for our sport. Um, but, uh, you know, no one, no one left that club. No one ventured out. Well, it turns out, you know, what's it's been 15, 16 years later now, there's a, you know, there's a half dozen great clubs within a half hour drive of that, of that spot. So, um, yes. Anyway, so I was kind of getting bored and like I said, I was working a lot, so I'd only try to catch a match here and there when I could. And my father-in-law had, um, we were just kind of out plinking at his range and he, handed me a revolver, a four inch 686 that um, he bought in the early eighties. And he was back at the Smith headquarters to take a class. And they had some, some performance center armors there. And overnight, this is the story he tells overnight, you know, while they were going back and having dinner in the hotel room, uh, they left the guns with them and they did trigger jobs on them. And so this gun was pretty well smoothed up and had seen a lot of rounds over uh, him owning it for about 30 years at the time. And it just, it felt good. It felt, uh, it, it felt like a, a, a tool, right? It felt, it was heavy. Um, you had to, you had to make it work. It wasn't going to do it for you. And I really just kind of enjoyed that, um, that mechanical nature of it. Um, and then the reloading, you know, the reloading was unique and difficult and hard. And, uh, and I wanted to try that. Okay. Yeah. You don't find okay. too many polymer revolvers out there. No, no. I Ruger, I think, you know, Ruger might dabble around with one. Okay. I feel, like, I feel like Ruger has a polymer one that's then lined in steel or something. I can't remember. Interesting. So everything's, everything's my father-in-law's fault. I guess that's where this conversation is going. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Including your wife. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's his fault too. That's right. That's his fault too. <laughs> now, when you got your very first USPSA match, was it with revolver or that 1911 or something else? No, it was with a revolver. So I decided, Hey, I'm really into this. So I shot it for about a year at a club 
and um, and the people who ran that club, um, they were really interested in me going to shoot the state match, which is a three hour drive away. And I said, all right, well, fine. I'm going to, you know, at least at least do a little bit of practice or maybe I'll catch another match. And we were my wife and I were down visiting my grandparents in Reno. And I brought my I brought my 686 and uh, I, I didn't know much about USPSA other than um, I didn't have to wear my IDPA vest and the round count was a lot higher. So I grabbed as many speed loaders as I can find and I had them jammed in the pockets of cargo shorts. I had them stuck everywhere. They were falling off of me on every stage. They were just flying out of my pockets. And, um, and so I shot my first USPSA match um, with a, with a four inch 686. Um, yeah, yeah, that was painful. I look back now and I go, I can't believe I shot that. <laughs> you know, Garen Singleton just got into revolver shooting Yeah, and he, and he was so concerned about running out of bullets. He carried 16 moon clips on him. Oh, well at, at nationals or at club match? Uh, uh uh, both. I think the first day of nationals, he said he had 16 and he looked around and nobody else did. So he's like, okay, I guess I can take yeah. some of these off. Or maybe it was I, I, I think I carry a lot. I've got eight on the front and two on the back and I could have one in the guns. There's 88 rounds total. But I've never, you know, in USPSA or IPSC, you'll never, you'll never need that many. But in, um, you know, revolver only matches, uh, there's, they get a little bit more outlaw. It might not all be one string, but uh, your round count or your moon clip count can get up there. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, I saw Garen. I didn't, uh, he introduced himself at the awards. That was, okay. that was kind of fun to see that. And then um, I think, um, I think Jeff, maybe Jeff and Jeremy told me his story is, you know, he's a, he's an auto shooter and came to, came to visit for nationals. He did. He enjoyed it. But um, yeah, I think I think he said the first day when he saw everybody else not wearing as many as him, he's like, OK, <laughs> I could probably take a few off. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a story and I'm not quite clear on it, but there's a story. I think Nils, you know, Nils shot some revolver uh, back in the day. And I think I remember hearing a story about um, him with a dump pouch. And just everything had to start on a bucket or a table or something. And he just walks up and on the clock, scoops all of them right back into the dump pouch, just cleans the table off. And, and you know, if, if someone's given me the chance to stage everything, I'm, I'm putting more than 10 out there because everywhere I reach, I want to grab a moon. So now Garen and Nils maybe have the most moons ever on the stage. <laughs> yeah, we may have to go back and review ver video footage to see who wins that one. Yeah. <laughs> Now, did you see that um, Jerry Michalik just set a, a a world record? Oh I yeah! Like okay, it was during it was while we were at nationals. Once I once yeah. I found out where it was going to be, I called uh, Annette. Annette's you know Annette and uh, Elliot Isan are really good friends with Jerry, and I knew they were going to be there. And I called her and I said, "When, when, and where? I'd love to be there to watch it." And then I found out it was during nationals. I was kind of bummed out because I would have loved to go on and uh, been able to see that. Now, have you ever considered trying to do some of the stuff he does with speed? Yeah. Yeah. Who, who hasn't, right? <laughs> right. Well, Everyone's, I think his answer is yes, but. <laughs> I, can, 
<laughs> I can promise you every single person that's ever owned a 625 has tried it at least once. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then you go, oh man, he is really fast. Yeah, yeah. And he's still very fast. He is he's he's still very fast, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that plate rack was uh, extremely impressive. And I'm, and everyone who, uh, you know, talks to me about it, asks me about it, I say, you, you should go out to the range and just, you know, take yourself, especially the revolver guys, you know, take 10, 20 moon clips and, uh, and just shoot the time. Don't, don't try to hit the plates. Just try to draw the gun and shoot it too flat, you know, set a par timer there. So you do a couple and kind of get an idea of what that pace feels like dry. And then, and then try to shoot you know, six rounds live at pace, at the pace and kind of see how it feels. And, and, and then tell me it's not impressive, whether an auto or a revolver. It's right. It's, it's a pretty serious number. Yeah. And apparently at the same time he did the revolver, he set the semi-auto world record 201. Yeah. Yeah. One, so that, 188 revolver, which yeah, I was like, not, he shot I'm that revolver quite, faster. Yeah. So, so he set both records with the revolver. And he did? So, yeah. So Max's record, I don't believe it was an NRA record. I think it was a Guinness record. And I believe the terms um, were three swings. Um, and so Jerry, I believe he set out to break it with using the same metric, right? You get three swings and three swings is all because I, I'd have to go back and look at Max's. It's been a few years, but I, I feel like I've seen Max put him in like the one sixes, uh, you know, oh, during wow. a training class and the, you know, Max BJ and KC this, you know, the real three steel challenge guys, um, yeah. their numbers are incredible. And now that we have timers that report, you know, when they Bluetooth the timer to the tablet at steel challenge, now people can mm -hmm. go back and look at those numbers for the last few years. It, it's absolutely amazing what they can do. BJ's numbers are blazing. Uh, if you looked at just Casey's raw numbers, you wouldn't quite understand it. But if you're standing there next to him, and I've I've got to shoot with Casey uh, the last few years, you know Casey doesn't use the whole plate. Casey uses a sticky note in the middle of the plate. It's it's absolutely amazing how fast he can do that stuff and just stack the rounds on each other. Wow. Um, yeah. So B B J Max and Casey to me are just they're they it's a it's an unbelievable level of speed drawing the gun and um, hitting targets. But uh, but Jerry, you know Jerry's right there. And and years ago when there was a big a large bounty put on uh, breaking eighty seconds at the Steel Challenge, Jerry was taking really really hard swings at that too. Um, and you know Jerry's his raw speed is just amazing. Yeah, there's a few guys out there like that, like Billy Barton and Isaac Lockwood with their yeah. build real numbers. You know, yeah. there are a few people out there that are crazy fast. Yeah, I shot some I shot some uh, build drills last night in practice. I, I set aside a half dozen moons for the end of practice just to kind of see what my numbers were. Uh, John Scouten was asking me about it. He goes, can you can you come over here and play in this? I said, I don't I don't think my trigger is going to be able to hang with those guys. And so he said, well, make sure you give me a number. And I, I did six of them last night that were all pretty consistently right between like a 158 and a 162. And okay. uh, that's not going to hang with those guys with, you know, doing 11 to 13 splits. Right. Yeah. Doesn't, it doesn't matter if, you know, even if I can push my draw lower into the mid to high sixties, 
I just, it's going to take 75 to eight tenths of a second to fire six rounds from a revolver. Now, is that just the length of the trigger pull or? Yeah, the length and the weight, you know, a good, a okay. good, um, we can get double action triggers down. I've got a, I've got a really smooth 686 down in the high threes double action, but the return is uh, lacking is, a, is the best okay. word for it. If the gun's I dirty, the gun, it doesn't return at all if the gun's dirty. Um, <laughs> That's not going to work. Run my, I run my triggers a little bit heavier than probably most of the guys around me. I'm between six mm. and a half and seven. And I, I really like a, uh, a really heavy return. Um, maybe now that there's a half, you know, there's um, three guys shooting Rugers on the super squad. I think their triggers are probably in that same area, six and a half to seven, but the Smiths, no problem getting those into the mid fives, you know, up to six pounds and, and still having a, uh, a return that's plenty fast for matches. Okay. Now, if I were to ask anybody competing for CO Nats and, and a win, and I said a six and a half to seven pound trigger, they'd look at me like I was speaking Chinese. Yeah. Casey, Casey <laughs> walked up to me a few years ago in Florida and he goes, what all he said was, what's your trigger weight? And I said, Oh, you know, it's six and a half, seven. And he, he his eyes rolled back in his head. <laughs> How now, why do you like, what is it about a trigger that heavy that you like? Well, it's not, that's, that's not just crazy kind of where, heavy either. Well, that's just kind of where my work comes out to. If you, if you get a gun and you, and you go, okay, this is my match gun. And you know, like a uh, TK custom does all my revolver work, Eli over there in Illinois, he replaces all the parts um um a lot higher higher end parts lighter trigger you know he's got a new um sorry lighter hammer different trigger all the stuff really works together well out of the box um and then you take that and then you start to build on that and you go okay let's let's start uh, messing with springs let's let's mess with both the main spring and the return spring what happens if we do this what happens if we do that um if you if you take his work and you just shoot it, it's going to smooth out a little bit, right? Everything's going to continue to smooth out. There's only so far a trigger drop can take you uh, with the mechanical nature of a revolver, and it's going to get better and better and better over time. Um, but uh, and you'll be able to to lighten the overall trigger pull. Okay. Uh, but I I like a much heavier return um, than I think most people do, and and by most people I don't mean you know, the, the top 10, I think the top 10 are, we're actually all pretty similar. We really like a, a an aggressive return. Um, I haven't, I haven't handled a lot of guys guns, but I have shot a lot of guys guns, you know, in that group. Um, and, uh, and I just, I just like more return. Uh, my guns turned up a little bit higher. The mainsprings turned up a little bit higher maybe than, than, um, someone else's gun would be to, you know, to guarantee ignition. Um, I've had one light strike at nationals. It was the year I, I won my first one, 2017. And, um, it cost. you know, if I, I sat back and looked at the points and I go that it cost me the time to come around and get it again. And it wasn't even at an opportune time. You know, it wasn't the eighth round of an eight round gun. It was the second or third, but it still cost me time. And it cost me points in, you know, there were some really short, fast stages at that match. Um, and so I've gone out of my way to ensure um, 
zero light, zero light strikes. I mean, the gun's turned up a little bit more. Uh, my primers are all seated a um, little bit deeper than they need to be. Um, I go through QA on my ammo usually really, really well. Um, yeah, so so the there's there's probably half of that extra pound is in the mainspring, and then the other half of it's probably in the return. I use a full weight return spring um, that comes with the gun, like a 16 pound, where a lot of guys are, you know, 11, 12, or maybe even taking something and clipping it, making it even a little bit lighter than that. Wow. Okay. Goodness. Now. <laughs> we talked about redoing this again because you had messaged me and said first gear, second gear, seventh gear, <laughs> LOL. Uh, so I want to get into that real quick because you did just win another national championship and you seem to have literally like you don't, you don't do first, second, third gear. It's like you come out of the gate, like you're warming up on day one you get a little faster on day two, and then I don't know. You're like Michael Jordan in Game Seven. I don't know yeah. what's going on here. So, do you? Is it an actual different gear where it allows you to move faster, shoot faster, see things faster, or are you just so locked in with your focus? And maybe that's what that gear is—that you're able to really kind of apply a lot of pressure. No, I think it's actually the opposite. I relax. Well, you know, this year, this year was a really unique match, right? Two, um, two out of three zones. So two out of three days were, I mean, everyone's talked about it. We don't need to rehash it here, but the shooting right. was a little, is, was a little ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and I'm not saying the shooting, the shooting isn't the same for everyone. The shooting's the same for everyone. But, uh, you know, years ago I took my dad to a match. He had just had both his hips replaced. And he was kind of pouting around the house. I said, come on, dad, get on a plane. We're going to, uh, it was a nationals in Talladega and I rented him a golf cart so he could putt around. I, and I, perfect. I have someone to haul my stuff around for me. <laughs> and dad's a, uh, dad's a C-class shooter. He shoots a little bit of revolver and a little bit of uh, single sack and a little bit of limited. And, um, and he, you know, he kind of looked at the stages and he'd drive to the next stage and get up and kind of walk around with us for a bit. And he walked around with me a little bit when we were walking the match. It was before shooters were there. So it was either before the match started or in the evenings or something. And I said, what do you think? And he goes, oh, I, I could hit all these things. And I can't remember who said it best to me once. I can't remember if it was Rob um, or who it was. That's a bummer because I feel really feel like someone deserves credit for this. But they said the definition of a good match is where, you know, a, a lower level shooter doesn't feel left out of the match because they can't hit the targets. Um, okay. And this match really embodied that. I mean, <clears throat> I would love to know who got out of this match with no misses. I'm sure it'd be easy to find on practice score, but I, right. they, they, either they, either, either they're the luckiest person alive or <laughs> their time was double the rest of us. Right. I mean, it was insane. And, um, I think, I think about the beginning of day three, I was talking to Casey and Jesse and, uh, you know, the, everyone's head was in the same thing. I saw, I saw Jeremy Reed and Jeff Cawthon and, uh, 
And right about the same time I saw JC and Kes or JC and Kessie, that's their new name. That's their celebrity name. Um, <laughs> okay. And I said, this match would be fantastic if all the distances were cut in half. But you know, you know they, that was one of the ahead. things I wanted to say, because Jay said you and him were walking off the state, one of the stage and you were like, if they move the, tar the target six to seven yards closer, this would be a yeah. great match. Yeah. Yeah. Five, five, six, seven yards closer. The whole thing. I mean, even the standards, I don't, did you see the standards? I did not. They were IPSC targets, uh, devil turtles, I call them. Um, and they were on turners. And there were three strings and they, um, so string one, they expose themselves. You're at 17 yards. It's uh, two on each reload, two on each string. Two was one on each reload, one on each freestyle or sorry, one on each freestyle reload, one on each strong hand. Then you moved up about five yards to 12 and it was one on each freestyle reload, one on each weak hand. And the time was set at four seconds with a stopwatch oh. and i and i probably timed it 20 times i got anywhere from from about 427 to 435 was their exposure time so i i actually shot it in practice last night because uh, i think jeremy had asked me are you going to go for it i said i'm i'm absolutely not going for it i'm going to try to shoot 60 points and call it a day and um and I shot it last night just just to see what it looked like. And I think I got eight rounds off the first position off, not hit off. And wow. uh, the last, you know, the strong and weekend, I got them all off. But it, it was it wasn't even close. It was like 50, 51 points. I mean, it wasn't. And there's a lot of risk there. Right. And I'm I'm pretty snappy with the old revolver reload. So I don't I don't know if anyone else had a shot. I think Caleb maybe got a shot off weekend up at 12 and it was a perfect storm. Everything went right for him and he fired around, but I don't think it hit paper. So. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. the crazy thing is both Max Leo Grandis and KC had zero misses. That, that is impressive, but those are full magazine dot guns. They are. They absolutely so, are. And they're heavy guns too. They're limited optics. Yeah, that actually doesn't surprise me. Max is really Max and Casey are both very calculated, both very you know of of anyone. I guess those two don't surprise me at all. You're number one and number two in limited optics with how many rounds do they have in those things? Like forty seven, something like or forty eight, I think. Yeah, that's yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's well, I don't know what it's like to open a box of ammo and put it all into one mag. <laughs> <laughs> no, like Jay was right, you know. You move everything. You don't even have to have the stages. Just move everything five yards closer. It and it would have been a. Um, the stages were great. Uh, I didn't. I didn't do any research on the range. I'd never been there, so I was the first zone. Um, I called it the bowling alley zone. Um, everything had to be in the berm, and they had some some side walls that weren't designed to take impacts. Um, and that's fine. It was nice that one third of the match was like that, not the whole match. Um, but again, I mean, I think on stage one, there was like a 38 yard partial. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I shot four rounds at it just to be safe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I was like, well, I'm already pointing at it and I've, it's already taken me a full <laughs> second to swing over here. So I might as well dump four. <laughs> um, now, is that what you, 
when you do your walkthrough of the stage, is that what's going through your mind? What's that? That I'm going to put four on that target over there. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I will pre-plan my, uh, my extras. Uh, if there's something that's risky, uh, there's a lot of risk in this match. Um, I'll, I'll plan to put extras on it. Um, yeah, yep, I do. I, so, so, um, oh man, I'm probably going to get this totally wrong, but, uh, the way I remember it, the way I interpret it is Ben, one of Ben's early books, he talks about grading a target and I, and that's and that's all the further I'm going to give him credit for because I think my version might be totally different. But but before I shoot a target, I will go grade the target and I'll give it a speed rating. How aggressive I'm going to be, you know, if I'm going to be a full on, just bring this thing up and send it. Um, you know, you know, maybe a wide open target that's right in front of my face would be a great example of that. All the way to this needs to be a hard sight. You know, I'm shooting a plate rack at thirty kind of sight picture. Uh, I'll grade everything ahead of time. And then, and even then, you know, decide where the extra rounds go as a risk. Our hit factors are so low that, you know, a, a miss is, is so detrimental. Um, okay. You can't, you can't really make that up. Um, yeah, that's the best way to say that. Okay. And you're not, and you're not getting a lot of feedback, right? If you, if there's a swinging target, you activated it and and you've come to it you you sometimes you lose that focus of the sights right you look at the target and you um and you just start launching some bullets at it and you're not getting that sight feedback um it doesn't matter how many rounds you put in it because you're probably going to miss them all but uh, sometimes it's good to you know force yourself to bring that focus back and go no i want not only do i want aim shots here i want three aim shots here because you know, for example, I saw I saw Christian shoot a stage the other day at Area Two on video. Layton was posting some videos, and it was uh, um, he was on a motorcycle, and it was four targets. They were all movers, and he took an extra shot. And Layton made a comment. Um, it, I think his total time was like a six ten, six oh five, six ten, something like that. And as Layton's walking up to it, you know, kind of doing his live feed thing, he said. Uh, would be interesting to see if he needed that extra shot because his time was in the low fives before that. And I went, oh man, there's 20% more time just right. to send that bullet down there. Revolver doesn't have that, right? We're not, we're not shooting stages in the fives. Okay. Uh, even a stage like that, that's only four targets, eight rounds. You know, he had two bobbers that came up and, and Christian put two rounds on each. It's not that we physically can't go that fast. It's that my Charlies aren't worth four. There were three. If I go down there and, you know, paint all those char paint all those targets in Charlies and Deltas, it's not really going to matter if I did it in six or if I did it in eight. Right. Um, it's, there's just so much more risk that I go ahead and pre-plan a lot of movers. I'll put three on. I shouldn't say that a lot of swingers I'll put three on at nationals this year. Bobbers were popular again and bobbers don't need three rounds. That's just a, that's just a regular target that you have to time is all that is. Right now on a 38 yard partial, what does your split look like on something like that? If you had to get, um, what would you put a time on that? 
That's probably a you know somewhere in the sixty to seventy range. Wow. In a match. Okay. But again, that's gonna but that's gonna depend on the stage too, right? If I walk the stage and have I gone, oh, this is a three hit. There's no point in in trying to really send them at at a really fast right. pace. Right. You know, we need to just we need to go in there and hey, if it's up to me, I'm gonna stack four rounds right on that AC line, which is where I was aiming. Um, okay. If it's, you know, if it's a six, seven, eight hit, uh, which is kind of where in major matches a revolver is going to max out. In a club match, you'll get bigger numbers than that, but most of those are kind of silly stages. Um, you know, six, seven, eight, then we got to go, okay, well, we need to shoot. We might put four rounds down there, but they need to be at a 40 to 50 pace. And I but again, that's, that's, not, that's not happening on a partial. Right, forty to fifty pace on a you know thirty-five, forty-yard target. That better be a wide-open target. Wow. Okay. Totally different game than uh, semi-autos, especially with optics. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it is. I haven't. I haven't spent time there, but I would imagine that um, the same math applies. The same metrics apply. Yeah, I feel though that it's a little. You can be a little quicker with the dot because at least you can see where exactly where your side is, you know? Yeah. I think you get feedback. I don't, I shoot a lot of revolvers right. with dots on them and I, um, you, I don't change my speed. I get better feedback. Okay. So you yeah. can call your shots better. Yeah. And, um, Yep, I, that's a, that's the best way for me to say that. I know, I know everyone does that differently. Some people actually shoot the dot slower than they do irons. Um, everyone sees that a little bit differently. I've learned over the last few years, but I I shoot at the same pace, and I'm looking at something different with the iron sight gun. I'm looking at the sights with the open gun. I'm looking at the target. Okay, that same 38 yard partial target. You're doing your walkthrough. You have an optic on your revolver. Is that still a four-round target? Um, well, if I have an optic on my revolver, I'm shooting, um, you know, revolver match, and the penalties for uh, shots outside the A are significantly heavier. So again, well, that let's just let's just say it's they it's revolver optics. Let's say they came up with no, a, no, a, my pace a, wouldn't be any different. I just have more feedback. But would you, in your walkthrough, still think that, okay, that's a four? I'm shooting four rounds on that target, even with Oh, um, yeah, probably in that case. I had four in the okay. gun. The gun's already pointed there. The hit on that stage was like a mid to high three. I'm probably just going to put all four there. Because, okay. you know, in a stage, you're really wound up. Especially the first two targets I shot in that position were – while they would normally be considered um, difficult shooting at maybe like 15 to 17 yards, they were wide open. And in that match, those were fast targets. You know, I was probably splitting those in the forties, you know, 30, the high thirties to low forties. And even, even knowing that that was a low hit, uh, those were fast targets compared to, you know, slamming on the brakes to turn to a target 20 yards further. Right. Okay. Um, wow. Completely different game. Wow. Yeah, 100%. 100% different. Once the hits start driving way down, the hit factors start driving way down, and everything that you shoot outside the A is, you know, worth 60% of the points, you don't have a choice but to change your numbers. Right. Yeah. Wow. All right. Now I'm going to ask this next question is going to sound like 
a smart ass question, but it's not. So you have to let me explain. I love it. I love it. Okay. So you, you just tied Jerry's record for seven consecutive revolver national championships. Do you get tired of winning? And I ask that because you mentioned Ben earlier. Ben has said publicly that, you know, when he had, I think he won eight in a row. I could be wrong, but it's something like that. And then he just stopped going. And one of the comments he made was, I didn't have anything left to prove. But yeah. you have you have Nils, you have Rob Latham, Max, who you mentioned, JJ, Casey. They're all still going, still shooting, still doing all of that. So that's why I ask, do you still have that drive to keep competing at the same level that you are? Yeah, I don't. Um, sometimes I think about other stuff going on in life and I go, ah, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have like a 24 month break from shooting and guns and doing classes and traveling and really be able to focus on some of the other things I'm really passionate about in life right now. And that, that thought flickers through my brain. Then I go, what am I saying? I love that. I, I, I didn't go to this world shoot. There was a lot that went around it. Right. And, and I yeah. talked to my teammates, um, and, and we all decided that, uh, you know, it just wasn't right for us at the time. We kind of had to make the call pretty early. Um, and then somewhat roll the dice if it was going to work or not. At least that was our opinion from people who didn't go. Maybe the people who went have a, a much less, um, uh, negative opinion of it than that. But uh, we made the call early not to go as a team and we were going to stick with that. And uh, I hated it. You know, mid-match, oh, I said wow. to my wife, I'll never miss another one. And she's like, what do you mean? I thought you weren't going to be upset about this. I was like, neither. I'm not upset I didn't go. I'm not missing another one. Okay. So, apparently, I do miss it when I don't go. <laughs> apparently. Yeah. Newsflash. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't blame you because, I mean, when you're at that level, there are only so many opportunities realistically that you have unless you're Eric Grafell and you have sponsors where you can go to every single world championship for 30 years, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if anyone is just getting handed money, you know, to go shoot and, and win. Um, I don't, right. I don't. I don't, I don't even talk to, you know, I've never asked Eric that, um, but I don't think anyone's just getting handed it and say, you know, send it. Um, uh, but. Uh, well, and I only said that because I think he's the, un, however he's doing it. Um, that's unusual. Most people don't have that opportunity. I mean, that, that guy is the pinnacle of shooting. Yeah. Um, how, so I, how I am is not. How old is Eric now? Mid forties? Uh, he's gotta be, I think his first championship was in the late nineties, but he was 16. So yeah, he's probably think, right around 40, 42, I'm guessing. Yeah. I think him and Max, um, I think him and Max are about the same age and they're five, six, seven years older than me. Um, okay. I don't, I don't, I don't know what Ben is. I haven't talked to Ben much, um, lately. I haven't seen him lately. Um, but I mean, if I had to guess, and this is completely from outside, um, if that was me, his his um, his interest became his job. Yes. Um, and, and those things are so hard. I mean, how many of us want to go home at the end of our day and uh, 
you know, I'm gonna, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm going to go home and do the same thing I did all day. So I get better at it for tomorrow. And your co your coworkers would look at you like, what? You're nuts. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. imagine like, imagine an accountant. What are you doing tonight? I'm going to go home and do, you know, I'm going to practice my calculator skills. What do you mean? He's, he's going to be 44 years old, December 8th. Okay. Yeah. Seven, seven years older than me. Yeah. Six and a half years. Yeah. I think that's about the same age as Max. Max might be a hair younger. But okay. I would I would assume, I mean, there's plenty of sports that are uh less physical that you could look back at, right? Where you've got you've got some you've got some swimming, you've um you've got some tennis, you've got some golf. Well, you've got some quarterbacks in today's football that are, you know, significantly less physical than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago that are Absolutely. that are playing. And, you know, shooting is one of those sports that, um, you know, that raw physical when you're young can meld into a, a much more blended physical and, and um, psychological um, exploitation of, of your understanding of the game. And then Eric went back a few years ago uh, and, just, and just got in fantastic shape. So, I mean, you could say that, you know, Eric's 44 years old, but you know, six, seven, eight years ago, he went back and, and turned himself back in time by just by just crushing it physically. And he's continuing to do that. So I think you're just seeing someone who loves it and um, who's continuing to explore. I mean, look at Jerry. Jerry's, um, what, six, 69? He just said in that last video, right? 70, something like that? Something like um, that, yeah. And he just quit 10 years ago. Right. Um, Rob's well, still going. Rob Latham. Rob pretends to be the old man, but, but when the timer goes off, he's, you know, if you're just looking downrange and listening to the gun going off, Rob's not old, <laughs> right? He snuck in a win last year, didn't he? A nationals win. Yeah. I think uh, there's yes, a lot that goes into it. I think there's a lot that goes into it. I think Rob loves it. I think Eric loves it. Um, I'm not saying Ben does not but maybe it's, it's a possibility that um, it's work. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. you know, I, I talked to um, Tim Heron. Tim Heron has, um, you know, quit his job and uh, is doing instructing full time now. And we talked about that a little bit last month in Ohio. And, um, you know, he kind of, you know, asking me why I'm not doing more of that. I said, man, I just, I don't know if I love instructing. Um, and and um, he seemed to think it was a good idea that I didn't full time in that case. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, uh, not everybody has that passion to teach other people, but you have the passion to shoot. Yeah. And I, and I have a job that I really enjoy and I really like that it's separate and um, it's totally separate from shooting. It's totally separate from, from this industry and I really enjoy it. And um, I have a great team and we all get along great. And you know, why would anyone want to leave that? So right now um, that would be my thought is, uh, you know, I think, and I think we've seen several other people in the past stop going to big matches and start going and teaching a class with that same weekend and making a you know a nice payday. Yeah, and and I do think that teaching <clears throat> like Mason and Tim and a few others that detracts from your own personal skill. And, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it has a detrimental effect because I had Mason on earlier this year, and that was one of the things I asked him. I was like, "How much 
because I felt like, uh, I mean, I've taught rifle in the past and I've competed with rifle in the past and there's definitely a difference and it definitely takes it away uh, from your ability to train. And I asked him that I was like, how much of your disappointment in how you finished was because of how much you teach. And he said, well, I think there is something to that. I was like, okay. Yeah. I remember listening to Ben's podcast years ago and he, you know, talks about running here for this class, running here for this class, running here for this class. And he goes, yeah. And when I, and when I get home next week, I've got a pallet of ammo sitting there and I am phone off internet off classes off for four weeks to get ready for nationals. I mean, he had, he figured out that he had to carve that time out, but, um, you know, once, once that time equates to dollar signs, um, you know, the numbers that the numbers that, you know, doing classes can pull in even just civilians, even just USPSA competitors, they're, they're respectable monthly income numbers, um, even compared to professionals, uh, in a career. Uh, let alone what happens when you start to factor in um, maybe government contracts. And, right. uh, and, and, you know, Ben saying, oh, I got to take a month off. Who, you know, who among us would think, you know, I think I'll take next month off to get ready for uh, a, a USPSA Nationals in Ohio. That's, you know, that's a totally different way of thinking about, about the whole thing. And, and um, yeah. And like you said, he, 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 you know, if he mentioned he doesn't need it anymore, doesn't need to prove anything, then from a, from a business standpoint, then I wouldn't disagree with that. No, I wouldn't either. And yeah. I don't blame him one bit. Yeah. And he's not the first we've seen do it. We've seen several other people do the exact same thing. And, and people ask them, why aren't you there? He's like, well, I'm busy making 10 grand this weekend. And maybe that's why Max leaves. Sunday, you know, as soon as he's done shooting carry optics, he's out of there because he's got he's got to go back and get back to the business of making money. Yep, yep, and that. Um, yep, I get that. Yep, I do too. Until next time, don't be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs>